Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Kazingam Dialogue. I hope everyone is safe during this time. My name is IJ McCann. I'm your host. My guest today is Jason Manning. Jason is a professor of sociology at the University of West Virginia. He's an expert on the sociology of conflict, social control, and the sociology of suicide. Together with our last guest, Bradley, Jason is the author of The Rise of Victim Culture. So in this episode, we discuss the background of the book, uh, the concept of microaggression and its quick rise within various institutions um, and the shifting understanding of violence and, and within the contemporary university education. Hope you enjoy this episode. Please welcome Jason Manning to the Xeom Dialogue. Jason, thank you for doing this. Welcome. Uh, I spoke with Bradley last week, and Bradley, in your book, The Rise of Victimhood Culture, really gives us a holistic understanding of this victimhood culture that's uh, that's becoming prevalent in universities. Mm -hmm. What got you guys interested in really pursuing this and bringing it out and making a book out of it? Well, we both, and I might be repeating things Bradley has already told you, but we both have a background in the study of conflict and, you know, what sort of grievances people have and how they handle them. And we uh, both have done work on violence. We both teach courses on the sociology of violence. And within that area, there's a big distinction between dignity culture and honor cultures. We talk a lot about the historical shift in moral cultures in our teaching and in our, our writing. And so we started just, you know, we have an interest obviously in campuses because that's where we work. And we started seeing news coming out of some campuses and it just seemed really interesting to us in light of our subjects that we teach and read about. It seemed like people were handling conflicts on campuses in a very uh, unusual way that didn't quite fit into the dichotomies we had used in our teaching about dignity and honor cultures. We started thinking maybe there was something else going on. Um, another thing that immediately caught our, our interest is we both have this interest in false accusations and rumors and other things that might spark conflict. Hmm. So Bradley, having studied genocide, knows a lot about the false accusations involved in genocide or the you know, myths that one group will have about another group. Um, like medieval Europeans thought that Jews were poisoning the wells and causing hmm. the Black Plague and that sort of thing. And I had previously taught a course on the sociology of knowledge where I studied rumors and myths and their role in sparking conflicts too. And so the immediate incident that captured our attention, and this is what we, we lead uh, the introduction to our book with, is at Oberlin College, a, a college of a reputation for a lot of progressive activism. You had a sighting of somebody in Ku Klux Klan regalia on campus, and people, there's a little panic over it. You know, the classes were canceled, the administration was sending around warnings, and, you know, people were taking this threat very seriously, and we're just, you know, from observers reading the news going, Really? A Ku Klux Klansman on Oberlin College, you know, this is not, uh, this is not 1933 when the Klan's a prominent organization, and this is a very progressive place. It's the last place you'd expect to find a Klan chapter. And sure enough, the sighting turned out to be a mistake. It was somebody wearing a towel 
<laughs> I mean, in the showers, being like that. And someone, you know, interpreted that as being a Ku Klux Klan robe. And everybody took this accusation seriously immediately. And the, the panic just reminded us of these things we'd seen where people were incredibly credulous in the face of, you know, some alleged threat, whether it's, you know, ethnic group X or Y, uh, who you think is an enemy and is infiltrating your your society, or whether it's like you know, witchcraft accusations or mm. things like that. It sparked our interest by reminding us of some of the stuff we've read and taught about. And from there, we started looking at other things going on on the campus, including uh, a website, Oberlin Microaggressions, mm. which was the first place either of us heard of the concept of microaggression. Uh, these things were minor, verbal, often unintentional slights that were said to It'd be a source of great oppression for minorities. And the task of this website was to document them and raise public awareness of, you know, look at all the oppression we have here on Oberlin College. And so that also struck us as funny and sort of weird that this very anti-racist place, you know, this place where probably you could find 99% of people agreeing with, you know, anti-racist goals that racism is the worst thing ever, uh, was, was you know, concerned, people there were concerned that racism was all around them and it's permeating our whole institution. And look at all the oppression going on at this wealthy liberal arts college full of progressives. And we saw that as being related to the Ku Klux Klan scare mm. in some way. Um, and there's a old line from a sociologist, Emil Durkheim, who wrote in the late 19th century. And he said something along the lines of in a society of saints, there would still be sins. There would still be crimes because the least saintly person would be called out as being a criminal. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it reminds us of that and this idea that, you know, in some ways, um, morality is kind of Sisyphus, mm-hmm. you know, the, the myth of Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill, then it rolls down. They have to push it back up on the other side. It's always kind of going to chase something, even in a place where you've stamped out, you know, any large acts of racism and any sort of overt hostilities and where you have an official ideology that most people genuinely subscribe to of, you know, this is terrible stuff and we're glad we've moved beyond Jim Crow and these horrible things in the past. Even there, you're going to find people, you know, finding something and saying, well, that's racist and that's a threat and that's oppression. And, oh, you know, if there's no Ku Klux Klansman around anymore, we start seeing people dressed in blankets and thinking maybe that might be a Ku Klux Klansman. And so it reminded us of this quote from Durkheim, the idea that, you know, our morality is always kind of chasing after something to condemn. And even when we've succeeded in, you know, ferreting out a lot of the more extreme things, and we're just going to start looking at the smaller things as if they're extreme, and maybe in some cases seeing things where they're not actually existing. And so we just got involved in studying these microaggression blogs and what kind of things people complained about. And around the same time, um, including a few years after we published our original paper, there was a big flap of protests incidents on campuses, you know, Missouri, Yale, other places, you know, kids, uh, college kids surrounding professors and cussing them out, telling Mm -hmm. presidents to resign. you know, rioting over you know, speakers. They didn't want to come to campus. And we connected that to this too and said it's all part of the same sort of uh, evolving moral system that in some ways looks different from the moral systems we've been teaching about all these years. Is the, can you explain, I've always wondered, so the term microaggression, right? It's, presume like microaggressions, small aggressions 
um, like you said, that somehow <laughs> oppresses the minority. Where does that originate from? Is it from um, a conflict theory uh, class? Is it from like um, intersectionality, feminism, or I mean, I guess they're both related. The term's actually been around for quite a while. Like it's been around since the 70s. Okay. Um, I'm forgetting off the top of my head who actually coined it, but the one who did the most to popularize it and use it in his career was a counseling psychologist, Darold Wing Su. Okay. And you know, he's been writing about microaggression since the 70s mm. and sort of was sort of the authority on, on the concept. Um, but it kind of like just bubbled below the surface. Not very many people outside of, you know, a small number of people in that literature in academia had never heard of it up until around, you know, 2014, 2015, when mm. suddenly it seemed like everybody was talking about this and it was in blogs and on the news and campus administrations were, you know, taking official actions, making lists of things they considered to be microaggressions. And nowadays we've gotten to where, you know, we've actually seen this concept used in you know, legal documents, like a, I think it was in Oregon, a um, public union of some kind, like mm. road workers union or something, actually had in their union contract that you can't microaggress against us. Or you have at some colleges and universities now, like on the teaching evaluations of faculty, it has like a little box to the professor use microaggressions. So this has become an official concept very quickly and a, a popular concept just in you know, the past four or five years. But yeah, it has been around for a long time, just sort of waiting to catch on. So something clearly must have happened mm -hmm. in the past five, six, seven years to lead to it flowering like it did. Is is microaggression, microaggress, can we, is it possible, just for argument's sake, is it possible uh, for microaggression to be objective? Can Is it possible that microaggression, we can... Uh, we could come up with a solid argument that ah, X is a microaggression and Y is not a microaggression or is it just completely subjective to you, me, you know, someone else? <laughs> well, I mean, if one, I mean, one could you know, define that word in, in such a way that it was objective. That's not the way it's defined usually. Um, the way the concept is usually employed is it's any sort of small slight, even unintentional, even well-intentioned, that makes somebody feel, you know, uncomfortable or makes them feel they've been slighted. And the problem with defining it in terms of, okay, it's anything that gives offense to a, you know, certain social group is people can take offense to virtually anything. Mm -hmm. And if you actually study the conflicts people have and do this kind of cross-cultural research, you see that in the grand span of human relations, People do take offense to everything. There's nothing that wouldn't be considered offensive to some person, somewhere, sometime. And that makes it a problem, though, because having defined the behavior by people's reaction to the behavior, it's no longer an objective behavior. It could be anything. I have no idea what might offend somebody in some particular context, right? I mean, like there's you know, 7 billion people on Earth. They all might yeah. be offended by some different thing or other. It's hard to predict. And that's what makes it not an objective behavior. That's what makes it impossible to say, for example, that, oh, someone said I microaggressed, but it was a false accusation. I'm actually innocent. There's no such uh, 
logic of saying that because if they took offense, it was a microaggression. Mm. It's impossible to have a false accusation of microaggression. The fact that they accused you means it was a microaggression. Right. Right. Can you, uh, <clears throat> can you microaggress yourself? Like, you know, like I, if it's true, I mean, I probably, when I wake up and I, I go to the mirror, I'm, I'm microaggressing myself by looking at, I was like, man, my hair looks like crap today. Is that, you know, does that count as microaggression? Is it, can you be offended at yourself? I've never heard that. Um, I will say in the sociology of conflict, um, and this is an idea that comes from Donald Black, who's been a big influence on Bradley and I's work. He's a, he's a theorist who studies conflict and explains a lot of patterns. Um, he puts forth the idea that people, in fact, do have conflicts with themselves and grievances against themselves all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we usually define it in like psychiatric terms and call it, you know, uh, depression or something like that and say it requires therapy. But People all the time exert some sort of moralism against themselves, including drastic things like some, uh, something I write about, at least some proportion of suicides are basically self-inflicted capital punishment. Someone mm-hmm. feels guilty or terrible about something and they, they kill themselves over it. So it's definitely possible for people to have grievances against themselves and to take offense at their own behavior or thoughts or feelings. We do it all the time, really. But I've never heard the concept of microaggression applied to it. That's almost always something that's intergroup, like intersocial group of some kind, men and women, black and white, something like that. And it's usually defined so that it's always in one direction, right? It's always majority to minority or male to female. Um, That's where the problem a a, go ahead. I was just going, and that's where the problem arises, right? When you just group. So if you have like, um, yeah, I guess in North America, Caucasians are the majority. And so, Caucasians, Caucasians can microaggress against non-Caucasians, but can non-Caucasians uh-huh. microaggress against uh, Caucasians? Well, the way the term is used and defined, no, no. So it's it's an offense only some people can be guilty of; others can never be guilty of. What if what if there's By a definition. Caucasian in India? <laughs> um. You know, there actually have been complaints. Um, one of the things we cited in our early work on this was a, a um, American living in Japan mm. who wrote a editorial or a letter to the editor in, in, the, in the Japan Times complaining about all the microaggressions Japanese subjected him to, <laughs> such as you know complimenting his use of chopsticks <laughs> or complimenting his pronunciation of Japanese words. And by the way, I'm, 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 you know, my, my wife's from Korea and I'm trying to learn Korean now. If you complimented my Korean, I would, you know, probably kiss you because um, it's terrible and I know it. I know you're just being polite to me, right? <laughs> but anyway, I, I would take it as a literal compliment. But I guess this person didn't. They thought, you know, it's, oh, it's wearing me down while these Japanese people assuming that I can't speak the language well or right. that I can't use chopsticks well. And so he wrote an article complaining about it. So I have seen someone make the argument when they were a minority, like a Caucasian who was a minority in another culture, make the argument that they're being microaggressed against. I've rarely ever seen that brought up in any of these discussions within the U.S. Though. Oh, really? Because um, it's it's sort of a funny thing. Like, you get the sense in a lot of these discussions about majority, minority, and mm-hmm. you know, um, racism and and power. Is people almost take it as like an as an axiom that like whites or anglos are always the ones in power always the majority always you know at the top of the hierarchy mm-hmm. which seems 
odd assumption to me. I mean, it's, it's a historically contingent assumption and a geographically localized yeah. assumption. Um, I mean, they're you know, forgetting a, about a the Irish sailor. What's that? Is it that you, you people tend to forget about what happened to the Irish? You well, know. yeah, and it, yeah, and uh, that a lot of European history is Caucasians victimizing other Caucasians, right. but, and uh, <laughs> or you know um, that you know the, the West wasn't always the dominant uh, technological mm. power, mm-hmm. and if you know if it's the year fifteen hundred and a Dutch person gets shipwrecked in Nippon, um, he's not going to be treated as somebody from a superior civilization. Right. <laughs> so is it? Is this so? This this idea of like microaggression, and um, I, I'm assuming plays directly into the fact that uh, we were just talking about how whites now somehow can't be racist. I mean, they can't mm-hmm. be racist towards, right? That's right. That's right. You know, you you can't be like um, uh, you can't be a you know a white person that goes, let's say, to uh, Ecuador, and then you know the Ecuadorians, let's just say, for this. You know, they treat you really badly just because you're white. And then you say, hey, look, these guys are treating uh-huh. me really badly. This is racism. But within this conflict theory, victimhood culture, whites, you can never, you can never have, you can never be the, you can never receive racism if you're a white person, correct? Uh, that's the way some people, increasing number of people define the word racism, which is not the way we used to define it. And most of us still probably don't define it that way. We mean treating people bad because of their race. Um, But yeah, uh, among academics who are into this kind of thing, they've come up with a new definition where they say, well, no, it's not racist if it's not um, directed at someone less powerful than you. And then they say whites by definition are more powerful than everybody. Mm. Therefore, whites by definition can never be victims of racism. So they've kind of defined the terms that, you know, whatever you do to a, a Caucasian person, it's not racism, even if you just you know, beat them up or something. It's hey, I mean, you maybe it was anti-colonial resistance or something like that, it's, or uh, yeah, you know, a bit late on, on that. Yeah, uh, well, the the point is that's the way these things are. At least you know, and I, I don't have any quantitative estimates, which mm-hmm. is what someone asked me at a recent talk. Do you have any quantitative? I'm like, well, I'm more of a theory guy. I do uh, research on you know, archival things and using existing sources and comparing cultural patterns. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how exactly widespread that sort of new definition of racism is. I just know it's people who are prominent activists on campuses, sometimes journalists. Um, I've seen journalists in a couple different outlets cite this uh, new definition in order to justify, well, you know, person A did to person B wasn't really racial hostility because person B was you know, a Caucasian and therefore mm. it's, it's a, okay. It's not really racism. And so where this idea of grouping um, individuals into a large, you know, they're just, they're just part of this, mem- uh, just part of this, uh, this group. And therefore we can, you know, uh, treat this group poorly. Where does this come from? Just like this idea of grouping everyone into something. Mm, I mean, that's, uh, where does it come from? I mean, it seems to be a very common tendency in human history, right? That we, you know, sort ourselves into these groups. And I mean, a lot of the times we are sorted into groups, you know, tribe or, or nation or whatever, but um, to get at what I think might be the spirit of the question, uh, the tendency in modern discourse to do this 
strikes me as a little bit strange because we have all these other, you know, countervailing tendencies of, um, you know, in many ways we live in an individualistic society and in, you know, a lot of the like civil rights discourse and really this, the trend towards, you know, combating intergroup prejudice and racism and things like that has been towards, Hey, recognize people as individuals. Don't just say that's a, that's a black, that's an Asian, that's, that's a person, right? You got to get to know them as a person. And so that's a very, you know, mainstream and has been a very mainstream way of talking about people in the past you know, 50, 60 years. And at the same time, there's this other trend of, and, and it's weird to me because it's connected to anti-racism. Mm-hmm. which is what makes it seem sort of contradictory in my mind of talking about everybody in terms of these groups. And it's almost like uh, these categories become the locus of morality for a lot of people, like um, stories and situations are viewed in terms of, okay, are group X and group Y equal well, or Bill and Tom equal is really the question. Are you treating them each fairly to me from an individualistic point of view, I would think that. But it seems like this tendency to lump people into categories and think of the categories first is just extremely prevalent, even among those whose stated beliefs are to not you know, be prejudiced against people because of their membership. Hmm. So I don't know how you explain that. Maybe it's the human tendency to you know, think of each other in terms of these groups is just so deeply rooted that it hmm. crops up again even in unexpected places, even when it's kind of contradictory to other streams of the culture or ideology. Is, is there, a, do you think there's a relation between uh, the radical individualism that's in the West and this rise in um, categorize, categorizing people into certain groups? Mm. Hmm. It could be. Um, you know, a few years ago, well, a few, it's like a few decades ago, in academic terms, everything is slower, right? <laughs> the most recent research was the research I read in grad school 15 years ago. But like it, several decades ago, there was a famous uh, sociological study of converts to the Unification Church of Sun Young Moon, mm. popularly known as the Moonies in, in the US. And the Sociologists who did this study, you know, based on their observations of these people converting to this, you know, at the time, very, very small religious sect, you know, weird, weird occult, most people would have seen it as, right? Um, that a lot of them were what they called social atoms. They were people without a lot of close ties, a lot of, without a lot of uh, conventional relationships and networks to hold them in. They were kind of free-floating people looking for a group to belong to. Mm. And that was part of their explanation of why people might join a very unconventional group that is looked down upon in the rest of society is that, well, you know, people are kind of floating around on their own without a lot of competing attachments. They make this attachment very quickly. And that attachment, you know, the, the beliefs and the other things kind of follow from it. And that might be a more generalizable idea that when you have people more uprooted and disconnected from you know, integrated communities are from sort of organic group membership mm-hmm. um, when they're just kind of free floating around as individuals going about their thing. I live here, then I go to college there, then I get a job there. Mm. They might be a bit quicker to latch on to these sort of distant or meso level identities. Um, these sort of broad categories are what well, I'm that. This is the thing that's me. 
Um, it's not a member of community A or community B, a member of this broader abstraction, like blacks or whites or women or men or trans or political party or whatever. And, and this isn't like an observation original to me. I, I, other people have written about it, mm-hmm. um, including folks talking about how, you know, the decline of the great ideologies of the 20th century, like the, you know, bipolar communist capitalist blocks mm-hmm. might have led to people kind of falling back on more, you know, in between identities, whether it's uh, Dar el Islam or, you know, um, things like race and ethnicity. So there's some, I might be sort of dancing around the question here, but there's some notion that, yeah, individualism uh, taken to a certain degree, maybe it just runs counter to people's nature enough that they latch onto something. Mm. And what that something is is going to vary depending on what else is out there. What other sort of institutions or communities there are to latch onto or identities there are to latch onto. So for, like, um, uh, Victimhood culture, is that the new, do you think that's the new moral paradigm that the majority of the West is just going to function within? Or is, it, or is it that people see how crazy it can get and then realize, oh, we need to actually, let's return to, you know, let's say dignity culture or create something totally new? Yeah, well, I was, I was going, going to respond, depends on what you call functioning. Um, <laughs> I don't, honestly, I don't know. Um, and I always get a little bit wary about predicting the future because, I mean, we can't even predict the weather three days in advance. So what are the odds I can tell you? But I mean, I mean you guys predicted things. the victimhood culture. As Jonathan Haidt said, you are the prophets. We're, you we are we the prophets. love that little poll quote, by the way. We, <laughs> we, we cherish that. And it's true. We did, uh, writing our first article back in you know, 2013, 14, mm-hmm. we did predict things would accelerate. Just basically because we identified several social trends we thought fed into what mm-hmm. we saw at places like Oberlin. And we said, well, we see no reason to think those trends are going to reverse themselves. And if it's true, they lead to this pattern of morality of being very sensitive to slight, tending to complain publicly into authority figures, tending to advertise one's fragility in order to get attention or help or whatever. We thought all that would increase. And sure enough, a few years later, you had all the big flap of... Uh, Victimhood eruptions, we call them on campuses, uh, the Yale Christakis affair and other mm-hmm. things. And so, yeah, we were right. It did spread. It spread more quickly than we actually thought. We're kind of surprised by our own accuracy, to be honest. Like, you know, hmm, I'm, I, I thought I was right. I didn't think I was this right, right? <laughs> and so, yes. Yeah, and the question is, how, how much farther does it keep going? And to go back to the logic we used to make the first prediction, I don't see any of the trends that we point to like social atomization or the growth of bureaucratic authorities Mm -hmm. or uh, the increasing interaction people have with weak ties on social media. I don't see any of that stuff reversing itself Mm. in the, in the near term future. So logically I'd have to say, I see the patterns we call victim culture also continuing to increase in the near term future how far that can go before, I mean, cause nothing goes on forever, right? Um, if every, if every, you know, social trend was self-reinforcing, nothing would ever, you know, change drastically. It'd still be like one rich Roman who ran the world or one rich, you know, Chinese dynasty that yeah. ran the world, right? Obviously dynasties fall, uh, you know, class systems get upended, empires fall apart, things change. So 
at some point, you know, whatever self-reinforcing process you have, some countervailing force derails it. Nothing continues forever. What that countervailing force might be, mm -hmm. uh, what sort of dynamics might undermine this development of victimhood culture, that I'm not too sure of. We did point to, in our book, a couple of ways that victimhood culture itself might be potentially self-limiting. Uh, one of those is we talk about purity spirals, which I think a lot of people are familiar with nowadays from social media. And the idea that, and this is, isn't just a victimhood culture thing, this could be like a you know small town church thing, whatever, whatever the community of people who believe in X very strongly, you get people kind of trying to outdo each other to be the one who believes in X the most. Right. You know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the most committed one, and one way they do that is by finding fault in those around them. So again, the Society of Saints analogy, someone's going to be picked to be the sinner because they're the least saintly. And you get this kind of accelerating dynamic of uh, people saying, well, I'm more victim than thou. And we've seen this, for example, in, in the LGBT community. Uh, there's been a couple of incidents where uh, LGBT organizations have said, oh, okay, well, gay men don't really belong because you know they're men and oh, cisgendered gay men they're, they're not real victims like the transgendered or you know gay women or you know when they face double and triple oppression so you guys are you're like the, the gay equivalent of the man right so yeah there was like a in the uk somewhere a lgbt organization basically ejected gay men from the group for not being oppressed enough oh my goodness or uh there was a lgbt march in somewhere in America, I think Chicago. And uh, they basically uh, got mad at the Jewish members of the march for flying a rainbow flag of a Star of David on it because that's also on the flag of Israel and the Palestinians are a bigger victim group than the Israelis. So you're, you're microaggressing against the Palestinians here, making them feel unsafe. Oh my. And so you get these sorts of, of you know, fallouts within activist communities where they're turning on each other mm -hmm. and that sort of you know, revolution devours its own thing might slow down the impetus of some of the more vocal and aggressive leaders of of the victimhood culture you also get and i kind of hinted at this with the example i just used competitive victimhood mm -hmm. which could both spread victimhood culture as even people who oppose it on a principled grounds kind of tend to play the victim card themselves We've seen this of like a lot of people who oppose camp victimhood culture are political conservatives, and they say, "Well, you know, if you really want to be a victim, try being a conservative on campus," which mm -hmm. may or may not be true. But it's an illustration of using that same argument of, "Yeah, well, look at us, we're being oppressed," as you're arguing against someone else. And that can lead to the spread, but it could also, uh, all, you know, tend to undermine it as well by causing again that fragmentation as coalitions kind of fall apart into arguing over who's who's at the bottom of the victim hierarchy or at the top as the case may be. So, so that's one potential yeah. limiting factor mm. we've identified. Is victimhood culture, um, what's the relationship between victimhood culture and the collapse of, you know, I guess Christian moral ideas. Is there any relation to that? Is it, you know, mm. so now, some philosophers would say we live in an age of emotivism where uh, morality is just, there is no, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not accurate, but morality is more so an expression of your emotions and your, 
and then it's just mm-hmm. imposing your will on others. Is there any relation mm-hmm. between that? Hmm. It's not something I've thought about in, in detail, though I have thought a little bit about how you can trace the roots of both dignity culture and victim culture into Christianity if you wanted mm. to. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the, 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 the sort of universalizing idea of dignity culture is that all people have inherent equal moral worth, uh, regardless of their station in life, regardless of whether they're the uh, dominant or the subordinate. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's kind of a ethic of tolerance there, which you can connect to the turn the other cheek you know, statement in, in, in the Gospels and that kind of thing. But also people like Nietzsche would say, well, you know, Christianity was really slave morality is what he called it, right? That it's uh, blessed are the poor or blessed are the meek. And you could kind of see how we go from this being a counterintuitive, see even these people are, are nice and they're willing to accept and hear God's word. So, uh, you know, you're better because you're poor and because you're meek. Mm. And, you know, it's, and so you could, you could see strands of both of these things coming out of that and i mean this in terms of like intellectual history right Mm -hmm. but as far as like the decline of christianity and how that connects to this that's not a subject i've really thought much about and it's an interesting subject though because first of all i'm not sure we know how to explain uh the decline of religion because it's Traditional religions or, or, you know, secularism is increasing. Uh, people who identify with no religion are increasing. And if you go to, you know, like the church in my hometown that my parents go to, there's no young people there. Mm. It's all older people. Partly because young people get drained out of these small rural towns anyway, but partly because they're less religious than the older people are. Mm. So how that connects to people's moral fervor, especially, I mean, people, a lot of people have made this observation. I'm not sure to what extent I, uh, I want to commit to this analogy. A lot of people have called a lot of you know, woke politics or victimhood culture or whatever term they have for it. They've said, well, this is a new religion. This is an argument some people make. And I'm not sure if I want to say that exactly, but I understand their point because they're pointing to the zealousness of a lot of the activists. They're pointing to a lot of the sort of ritualistic elements like getting together on the campus lawn to chant things and hold up your candles, looking a lot like a congregation mm. doing some sort of prayer, only sort of praying to God to intervene, you're praying to society to raise its consciousness of the injustice so society will intervene. Oh. And so you can draw these kinds of analogies. Yeah. And so is this a case of, you know, some other type of social group, social institution, you know, is, is dissolving and what fills the void in people's lives. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm not going to go to a, a congregation and sing, I'm going to go to the take back the night rally and chant. Maybe that's, maybe there are to some extent functional equivalents, mm-hmm. but to get into that, I really need to study more of the sociology of religion. <laughs> so <laughs> my, my opinion is not very informed on that matter. Um. <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, you could I, just going off with that analogy. I, I mean, they have their own priests and priestesses, right? The one, the ones who are the highest on the on the hierarchy of oppression. You know, whatever they say <laughs> must go. And if you disagree, then you know you get kicked off Twitter. And it's it's kind of fascinating in one sense. And I, I'd like to know what you think is, you know, with Twitter being a a private public square. Right, it's private in that mm-hmm. it's Twitter's, and it's public that everyone's on it. Uh, 
but you have mm-hmm. you have people being kicked off Twitter for saying something or uh, or not using the proper pronouns or mm-hmm. um, you know or disagreeing with um, trans men being uh, included in women's rights groups. Mm. Is this idea of I don't know if you would call it deplatforming on Twitter or um, it, how do you think that like what do, what's your thought in general about that whole situation where Twitter becoming this private public uh, square and should we have everyone on it? Is it do you think it's okay for Twitter to be like okay you guys you know you're you're going too far you're offending these people you got to get off. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's a thorny question, right? Because legally, yeah, they have the right to do it. It's it's a privately run company. And so the standard libertarian answer is, yeah, of course, they can do whatever they want. Are you mm-hmm. going to maintain the Twitter servers? Or you can do whatever you want if you have the Twitter servers. Um, I do kind of look at this, though, sociologically. And well, there's an important legal distinction between private and public. Mm-hmm. Um, years ago, a, 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 legal, uh, a legal sociologist studying how companies run company towns. Like, you know, sometimes you have like a mining company or a timber company, you know, or a factory has their own town for their workers to live in. And it's a private town, like it's run by the company. Uh, but I mean, people live there and it's the company is basically their government. And so there's actually a little bit of jurisprudence here where like it was established in a court case that the company town couldn't forbid you know, someone going door to door, handing out, you know, religious leaflets because freedom of expression still applied in the company town, even though it was technically mm-hmm. the property of a company. And, and the sociologist I'm talking about, um, he made a broader argument that, you know, if we think of government versus non-government as not being a dichotomy, but a matter of degree, like groups you know, the extent to which a organization governs its members is variable. You know, when there's a large, large enough uh, entity that has enough clout over your life, it effectively governs you, right? Mm-hmm. And just as you might tell somebody who doesn't like America's laws, if you don't like them, you're free to pack up and leave to another country. You might tell somebody who doesn't like uh, the way the company town's being run, you can quit your job and go get another job. But you know, as the scale of these things increases and as the difficulty of exiting the relationship increases, it comes to be a bit more like being under you know, a state, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's the depression and I don't like what the company town's doing, I could let my kids starve and you know, have my principled freedom or I could knuckle under and take what the company's telling me. Uh, where I'm going with this is just the idea that you know, sociologically speaking, what the you know, heads of Twitter do is not all that different from what university administrations do when they ban speakers from campus. Mm. And you might argue it's, it's definitely legally different. And uh, you might argue it's morally different, but it's, it's sociologically pretty similar. You have a sphere where there is some sort of authority and, you know, the authority is kind of limited in what it can do, but it can do things to sanction you. On campus, you could fail your courses or just be kicked out of school. And on Twitter, you get your account suspended. And, you know, that is a relatively minor sanction, maybe in the grand scheme of things. But to somebody who, say, you know, makes their living on the Internet, promoting content or hawking their books or videos or whatever, it can actually be a fairly severe uh, sanction. It might, you know, deprive them of 
their main connection to their audience and impact them financially. So just like you have on campuses, the students will complain to the administration and say, ban this speaker or punish this professor or send this other student to re-education. I mean, <clears throat> diversity you know, training or whatever. You could have people complain to the Twitter you know, authorities, ban this person, censure this person, and so forth. So to me, it looks you know, socially like the same pattern. People mm -hmm. coming to you know, inform on each other to the authority in order to make the person they don't like go away. And it could be a way of getting back at people. And you know, there's no guarantee that the thing they're complaining about is even the real reason they're mad, right? It could be, uh, this is the thing, you can't always take for granted in conflicts that people's stated grievance is their actual grievance, mm. especially when you have like a, a, a situation where some official or some institution is meeting out the punishments because if you want the institution to punish your adversary, you complain about the things the institution cares about not necessarily what you care about. So, you know, uh, you know, my, my neighbor is, you know, dating my daughter and I'm mad about that. I don't go to the judge and say, I make him stop dating my daughter. It's free to do what he wants. I say his driveway is on my property and, you know, uh, I need to take him to court to get him to move his driveway and cost him $10,000. Now I've gotten back at him, but yeah, I did it through uh, the means, you know, uh, allowed to me by the law. Mm -hmm. And you get, might get a similar thing both on campus or on Twitter or on any other social media platform where it's, I'm mad at you because of X or Y reason, but I'm going to point to this video that I'm, I might be able to kind of sell them on being problematic. If I can get four or five people to agree with me and have a little mini furor, they'll, mm. they'll, they'll kick you off. Mm. So it's really the same dynamic. It's coming to rely on the authority to censure your adversary or get rid of them. So to me, the two, you know, all these things look very sociologically similar, which raises the question of how morally similar should we find? Mm. And I don't exactly have an answer for that because I do, you know, recognize that I'm not the guy who invented Twitter. I don't have a bunch of servers in my basement for running a website. Uh, so yeah, the guy who, who owns it probably has some right to do as he pleases. On the other hand, um, would we extend this to the electric company? If, you know, someone complained to my electric company that I said something offensive and they were like, oh, I don't want to be associated with that guy. I don't want to do business with him. And they cut off my electricity. Mm. How would we view that? And what exactly is the difference? Uh, you know, it's, it's, electricity is more of a necessity in this day and age. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, necessity versus not necessity is a bit of a matter of degree. Mm -hmm. So where exactly you draw the line between, okay, I'm, you know, I, I need to have internet access for my business. It's a necessity versus I'm just some Yahoo screwing around on Twitter. Where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line between electricity and telephone or rights, but you know, Facebook and YouTube are not? I don't know exactly how to make that decision, but I do think it's worth pointing out that we're talking about quantitative differences, not necessarily qualitative ones. Mm. Is do you think that the the um, hate speech complaints are legitimate complaints um, in, in terms of what? what is considered hate speech you know say like say uh say you and i are on twitter right and mm -hmm. you know you're caucasian i'm not caucasian and you say something to me and I, mm -hmm. i'm trying to think of an example i can't think of an example just say say you, you say something slightly offensive and i say oh this is hate speech you know we should uh -huh. uh, we should take action against um 
we should take action against Jason. And so then I tell my Twitter followers, hey, next time you're on campus, you know, at, at, at college, if you see Jason, then feel free to punch him for me because his hate speech was violent. Yeah. That, that's often the argument you get um, by some of the proponents of you know, these extensive restrictions on speech is that speech is literally violence. Mm -hmm. which what do you is, think about that? Well, it's needlessly confusing. For one thing, we already had a word to distinguish violence from things that weren't violence. It was called violence. Now you got to say physical violence. <laughs> to specify, you mean what we used to just call violence. So it makes my you know, job hard because I teach about violence all the time. Yeah. And I get these kids writing papers based on things they've heard in other social classes or from campus administrators or government websites being like, violence isn't just physical violence. There's other kinds of violence. I'm going to write about verbal violence. No, it's, of course, it's not about words. It's about hitting people and shooting people and why that happens. So just from a conceptual point of view, I, I, the conflating of these two things annoys me. Because we already had words for uh, describing verbal aggression, like aggression is a broader concept than violence usually. Mm -hmm. Our insults are being mean. We, did, we take being mean out of the vocabulary. Yeah. Does it always have to be like ism? Can't you just say, oh, he said something mean to me? Right. I don't know. But and morally too, and ethically and legally, blurring the distinction, I find undesirable. Because um, that's the entry point for rolling back free speech. Mm. And you know, the US has been unusual in having very broad interpretations of free speech and being pretty firm in, in maintaining those. But in, and this is the, the point, point of the wedge where you start saying, well, you know, uh, the speech is equivalent to violence and we forbid violence, so we start forbidding speech too. But like, where do you stop? Where do, where do you find the speech that's not violence? Mm -hmm. Well, if it's like the concept of microaggression, it's in the eye of the beholder. If, it's, if it offended me bad enough, it's violence, which means you don't know what you can and can't say anymore. And you start getting sort of open-ended regulations. Uh, we're going to forbid hate speech, which sounds good because when I th first hear the word hate speech, I think you know, um, someone out there screaming, "Kill all the you know ethnicity Y, ethnicity X." I, th I think of like a Nuremberg rally or something. And it's like, well, you know, who wants to stand up for that stuff? I don't. But then you start seeing how it's actually applied, and it's someone used the wrong pronoun. Mm. Or someone said that, uh, you know, biological sex exists. <laughs> right. And you start seeing these, these really, these applications that seem incredibly wacky to me, then you realize what's sort of the inherent problem here. The thing has no bounded definition. It's like microaggression, what people take offense at. And so calling it violence uh, and saying we can ban it because it's violence just means you can ban now anything that offends anybody. Hmm. And that's where I start having the problem uh, morally and ethically with it because I don't want to live in a world like that. Yeah. Another thing I will point out is equating speech to violence isn't entirely new. Um, if you go back in a time machine to 1840 into like Georgia or Virginia or someplace, when people, uh, if you insulted them or even said something true but unflattering about them, they might challenge you to a duel. If you were equal in status, if you were lower in status, they would just whip you or cane you or uh, maybe assassinate you with a shot from behind, you know. And when they defended themselves and their actions and justified it, they said, you know, I have as much right to defend my character as I do to defend my home. 
he did violence to my character mm. when he has been insulting about me. So they understood, you know, that speech was violence back then too, and only they responded with violence. And that itself must have curtailed free speech quite a bit in the places where that was a common occurrence. One of the things we talk about in our book is the number of newspaper editors in the Old South who died in duels. Because being a newspaper editor used to be a fantastically dangerous job. If your newspaper printed anything that offended some local plantation owner or prominent person, they would do the done thing and challenge you to a duel. And so these newspaper editors fought like you know a dozen duels over the course of their careers, and a lot of them died. <laughs> and so an example of how sensitivity to slight and conflating speech and violence can mm -hmm. curtail free speech, even without all this you know bureaucratic rules we have now is people curtailed speech with their own violence. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. oddly enough, we see a little bit of that nowadays too. Um, the idea by some of the activist set seems to be if the, say, university administration or whatever doesn't do enough to protect us from this violence, meaning speech they don't like, mm -hmm. uh, we're justified in using violence ourselves as self-defense. So you mm -hmm. saw like that riot at Berkeley a few years back. Uh, when the, the crazy riots that, with all the fire? Yeah, yeah. The, uh, I forget all the exact numbers, but it was you know, thousands of dollars in damage done to the town, like a bank got shattered and uh, some people got hurt. So, like, I saw a video of one girl getting pepper sprayed in the face because she had like a MAGA hat on or something like that. And, uh, one, one guy got beaten with a bike lock. They actually arrested the guy who, who beat him and charged him for that. But all because, you know, Milo Yamagopoulos was coming there to give a talk. And I'm not a fan of the guy. He gave a talk here too and insulted one of my colleagues, but the, the idea of, you know, he's, and here again, like everyone's got to say like, ism, ism, ism. Can we just call someone an asshole anymore? Is that <laughs> removed from the dictionary? Can't you just be a jerk? Right. But no, it's got to be, you know, uh, white supremacy or whatever. Well, anyway, the, the, uh, he was coming there and they had this riot and there was a bunch of editorials in the student newspaper after the riot defending it, saying, well, we had to take matters into our own hands. The, the administration wouldn't protect us from his violence, so we had to use this as self-defense, which is totally an attitude that the uh, plantation owners of old would have understood. Mm. You're coming here to offend me. I got to defend my character with uh, violence. That's, and this, is, uh, this was happening with the honor culture. Right, There's, it's within the honor culture that you have these duels and these fights because mm. your character has been damaged and you want to defend your honor. Mm. Um, wh why? I, what I'm still trying to understand is how, like, how do we get to a point where, at least within universities, a place where ideas are supposed to be discussed, you know, ideas that you disagree with, so you can learn. Where ideas now, if you're not if you don't hold to the prevailing view and you have some sort of dissenting view, then all of a sudden you're on the fringes. And, you know, if you, if you espouse your view, then, you know, it's hate speech or it's violent or how do we, how do we even get to this point? Mm. How did we get to this point? Well, the, the freedom of thought at university is, uh, you know, we shouldn't idealize the past. We could always find some, some counter example of like uh, you know, for example, um, scientific theories that were very revolutionary were often considered jokes at the time. Uh, the theory of continental drift, for example, as recently as like the 1950s, if you said you thought the continents drifted and you were a young geology professor, you could 
probably kiss tenure goodbye. You were going to be laughed off of, out of your profession. But we never saw anything, I don't think, as extensive as, as the students you know, policing one another's speech or having these, here's the thing, like before it was more like people in their own little circles, everybody in, you know, human history, little cultures of people get their ideas, they rally around and their sacred beliefs, whether it's a scientific theory or, you know, religious text or whatever, that they don't want violated. But it wasn't centralized like it used, like like it is now. There wasn't like a university, you know, agency charged with going around finding things mm -hmm. that people thought were offensive and ridiculous, and you know, punishing them or subjecting them to like an eight-hour, you know, awareness class, which if it was like you know a communist awareness class. You call it re-education camp, mm -hmm. but we call it something like diversity training or sensitivity training, yes. or something like that. Um, so there wasn't that sort of thing, and that stuff I think grew up somewhat gradually, but accelerating in the past couple decades. Um, there's a sociologist, Frank Ferretti, who's written a little bit about mm. this. Um, it was like sometime around like the 1980s or late 80s, you saw the return of the doctrine that colleges cared for their students in loco parentis, like they're mm. in place of the parents. They're taking care of the students as their parents would. And that was something that had gone away for a couple of decades. It was, a, it was an older idea back when you know, these were like the, the finishing schools for, you know, the, the children of the elite. Um, but like by the 60s and stuff, you know, the student movements were like, no, we're casting off all the shackles. We're rebelling against your stodgy old authorities. And, you know, we want freedom to do and say whatever. And that's kind of an odd thing when you think about like, to some extent, the ideology here could be traced to the, the rights movements and the student movements of the 60s. But there was always a, a emphasis on freedom and almost, you know, a libertine sort of streak to the the, the 60 student movements they didn't want speech restrictions they wanted you know freewheeling everything versus you know you flash forward to now and it's the students who are demanding more speech not all of them obviously but uh, some of the people vocal in in demanding these restrictions are students like activist students who, who who lead this kind of thing and you have an administration that's very responsive to that and freddie mm -hmm. says this kind of started in the the 80s with colleges you know, reasserting that, all right, all right, we're, we're the parents here kind of rolled towards their students. Uh, the, the 60s rebelliousness had died down and, and, and uh, among later youth cohorts. And then what you got in the past 20 or 30 years was just a massive growth in administration. Massive. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, it's pretty common now to find schools where administrators actually outnumber the teachers. Yeah, I think Bradley you'll see. gave a number. I forget what the number was. It was like some, Bradley gave a number of like the, the percentage between administrators mm -hmm. and faculty. Yeah, it, it's, it's pretty crazy, actually. And, in, you know, working in a university, I actually, actually see this in concrete terms when, you know, they announce they're dissolving, you know, the position of dean of such and such and replacing it with six deans of such and such each with their own assistant dean. And the assistant dean has an assistant who actually does most of their day-to-day -day work while they glad hand. And... It's amazing to watch this stuff happen, even while other things are being cut left and right. Like, mm. uh, you, you get asked, uh, you know, okay, we had a person retire. Can we please replace this position and have another professor to replace someone who retired? Oh, no, budget's too tight. By the way, please welcome our new director of diversity, <laughs> who is going to be, you know, dean of diversity at the university. 
so you have all these inst you know, these departments and and institutes uh, and this proliferation of organs on the administration, and a lot of them are dedicated specifically to things like managing people's speech, managing mm -hmm. what can be said and not said, dealing with student complaints, training people to be more sensitive, training you know looking through faculty documents, is everything worded correctly? Is everything as sensitive as possible? And I think that's what fed into a lot of the explosion we saw in, in the past five, six, seven years is this apparatus reached a certain threshold where now it's very prominent in campus life and it's very easy to make use of it if you wanna you know, complain about someone or something. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to go through the experience without being trained in it, without being, you know, and here's, here's the thing, like the sensitivity training, it has an admirable aim in the sense that you're trying to teach people how not to give offense, which can be a real problem. You have people from different backgrounds mixing, not everybody knows, you know, okay, I shouldn't use this word, they find that word offensive or things like that. It, you, you might need to be taught, you know, how to view things from another person's point of view. Mm -hmm. But training in how not to give offense is also training in how to take offense because you're saying, here's the things that are offensive. These are things that um, are racist or colonialist or oppressive or misogynist or heteronormative or something in the list of terms goes on. So let's say the side of that coin and you have this you know, increasing number of cohorts of students, including you know, what they might've learned in high school too, because this happens in high schools now as mm -hmm. well being taught all their lives, use the deadly you know, sins that you should be on the lookout for that are offensive. And you're always going to have like some proportion of people who are like, oh yeah, cool. I'm, I'm going to be the one to call this stuff out. Mm -hmm. And they'll have this apparatus that aids them in signal boosting and punishing uh, people who cross these lines. And it's hard to point to like a single you know, point where like the switch flipped, it seemed like it accelerated a lot in the past, like starting around 2011, 12, 13. It seemed like it accelerated a lot around then. Is that just like a takeoff of some kind where you have like a threshold amount where like you know, the things start accelerating or was there something specifically that changed then? Hmm. That I'm not sure about. I wonder if there's a direct correlation between that and the rise of uh, critical theory and feminist studies within universities. Because, um, you know, the, I remember in one of my grad school, uh, one of my grad classes, it was, um, it was on critical theory. It's just a compulsory class. Yeah. And some of the ideas that we were discussing, I was just, I thought, man, this, I can't read. like, do people actually believe some of these things? And, well, I mean, clearly they did. But, I, mm -hmm. you know, what, got, what also got me wondering was this, this whole um victimhood idea, victimhood culture, as you and uh, Bradley talk about, it, it, it's, it's mainly within Western societies, right? Within like egalitarian, mostly egalitarian societies. And like, why is that the case that you find this victimhood culture flourishing in egalitarian societies and, you know, not? Well, one of the things we, we do is we draw from uh, Donald Black's theory of conflict, which is a you know, cross-cultural theory that tries to explain what people will have uh, grievances about and why some grievances are more serious than others. Like, you know, 
in one society, uh, drinking alcohol is a crime, and another it's not. In one society, adultery is kind of like a minor character flaw, and another it's something you get executed over, that kind of thing. And you know, glossing over some of the details and jargon and stuff, the basic idea is that what people tend to find most offensive is something that sort of runs counter to the existing relations. So, um, for example, in a very religiously homogenous society where like, there's one religion everybody more or less shares, heresy is a very serious offense. Mm -hmm. Deviations from the common belief will be more serious. If you have a society where there's already like a base level of diversity, um, like there's already several religious traditions coexisting, they tend to develop a more of a live and let live ethic. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is the case even if in other ways they look very sort of a, you know, not like human rights friendly places to us, like, you know, ancient empires like Rome were not what you'd call free and equal places, but they administered these multiple ethnic groups and they kind of realized, all right, everybody just get along, worship the gods of your fathers, don't insult no one else's gods and we'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And so um, you sort of get these moralities developing that are rooted in the existing social situation and that view deviations from that existing social situation as being very deviant is being very offensive. And so when you have people who are relatively equal, and you know, I'm always at risk of getting in trouble when I describe the modern West as egalitarian. But you gotta, you gotta think here like in broad context. And by broad context, I mean, you know, talk to a, a grandparent who remembers what it was like in 1940. Because um, it's not that long ago that, you know, Jim Crow was going on. <laughs> and we've come a long way since then. And people always think it means perfect equality. Right. Obviously, no. Um, I mean, talk to any immigrant disparities from like yeah. a developing <laughs> nation. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you can you can multiply the examples pretty easily of societies of stricter class systems, societies with stricter ethnic caste systems. Mm -hmm. uh, India has a literal caste system. I mean, it still kind of operates in the remote settings, even though it's not officially a thing like it used to be. But, you know, relatively egalitarian compared to cross-cultural norms compared to our own recent past. Well, when you have a place that's relatively egalitarian, maintaining that becomes a concern and things that are threats to that start to be seen as more and more deviant. Like picture the opposite extreme where you have one of those like strict caste or class systems. It's anything that threatens that that's the worst thing. That's the thing that'll get you thrown in jail. Uh, like in, in, in medieval Europe, if a peasant wore the same kind of clothing that an aristocrat would wear, you know, they, they beat him. It was like illegal to dress a certain way because it was like you're putting on airs, you were rising above your station, you need to know your place. Mm. There are actually laws against wearing certain colors because that color is reserved for the people who are in charge. Mm. Vice versa, in a more egalitarian society, you see people getting very sensitive to anything that seems to put another person down or to one person rising above others. Mm. And Oh, anthropologists talked about this in like hunter-gatherer groups, like small bands of hunter-gatherers, where at the family level, at least, there's not a lot of uh, inequality at all because they don't really have property. <laughs> like you know, everyone shares the kill and what you have is you know, the clothes on your back and what's in your belly that day. And they're incredibly sensitive to deviations from this. If one person even starts to get an ego or lord it over other people, you know, even bragging that he's a better hunter, they put him down. They all gang up on him and just cut him down the size. You know, it's the, the tall poppy syndrome. The tall poppy gets cut. 
And you see that in a lot of other times and places in various, various guises. And so the idea here is that once you've achieved some base level of, of equality, as, as we did with uh, the rights movements of the 60s and 70s, then any deviations from that start to become, we become without uh, things like Jim Crow or, or you know, Stonewall, we become very sensitive to verbal slights. And in the world of fact, people, you know, actively calling each other slurs all that often, at least not in the settings these students tend to live, then you start getting really sensitive to things that are maybe inadvertent, hmm. maybe even well-intentioned, maybe just a poorly thought out turn of phrase. And so it's the idea that the less of the racism you have, the worse racism seems to be, mm-hmm. and the lower the bar for being called racist, <laughs> right? Right. And like I've seen people online do this of like, uh, you know, word searches in the New York Times. Like the further we get away from 1960, the more white supremacy gets mentioned in the New York <laughs> Times. Like the farther away we get from Jim Crow, the more of a topic of conversation this is. Uh, you know, name, name other things, racist, lynching, like the frequency of these word usages just keeps going up the farther we, away we get from when this stuff was most intense. Right. It, I mean, that's probably why we have, I mean, uh, it's going, this idea of the, we want to keep the society as equal as, as possible, but, you know, the, mm-hmm. there's, there's this common not co- yeah, I guess it would be the prevailing view that we must have um, equality uh, equality of outcome. Like all, you know, the outcome yeah. has to be exactly the same, you know, whether you're, it doesn't really matter. And and so I, I never really thought about why. I mean, that it mm-hmm. is potentially the fact that we, you know, as a society, you're trying to keep everyone as equal and, you know, we can't say anything that might put the other person mm-hmm. above the other. <clears throat> so it's it's kind of fascinating. Is the um, so you know, a university again, you have um, you have faculty who are obviously much more educated, and I mean, even on this is, um, socioeconomically much better off than students. Is this now within this culture that we're living in it within the university? Do you think there's a sense in which the students who are activists feel this? And so they, you know, they, they have, they feel like they have the right to, you know, circle and um, their professor and shout at them like um, that professor at Yale. Was it Yale? Eric? Erica? Yeah, at Yale. The, um, Erica and Nicholas Christakis. Yeah. That's right. I hadn't actually given that a ton of thought, surprisingly, but. Uh, since you mentioned it, that's probably got something to do with it. Uh, and, 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 you know, here again, you don't want to idealize the past. I'm sure professors have been complaining about these disrespectful students forever. But I'm pretty sure they weren't being shouted and screamed at 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, over, you know, sending an email suggesting maybe the kids can handle offensive costumes on their own without mm-hmm. oversight. Because it really was, a, people have misrepresented this, by the way, including, uh, what's his name? some politician, I think it was Howard Dean, um, you know, saying, you know, 
it was she wrote some sort of screed saying offensive Hall Halloween costumes are okay. You know, she didn't. She agreed that they shouldn't have offensive Halloween costumes. She just sent an email suggesting that maybe the administration didn't need to police it. Maybe the students were mature enough to handle that on themselves by talking it out and, you know, uh, social norms of their own. And for merely questioning the need to regulate offensive Halloween costumes, mm. there were protests against her and demands she get fired. And then when her husband, Nicholas, went out to try to engage the students who were protesting, saying, can I please talk? That's when they started screaming, F you, F you, at him. Right. Just, uh, yeah, it was, it was it's bizarre. Like, it reminds you of something out of the, the Cultural Revolution, only without, you know, him being killed and dismembered at the end, thankfully. It's like a Nerf Cultural Revolution. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad it's the Nerf version. I mean, and some of those professors there got eaten, like literally. <laughs> but oh my goodness! But that's what it kind of reminds you of. But yeah, this this idea that uh, there's no authority, hmm. uh, even even authority, not like in the sense of like political authority, but like expert authority. I think some sense of that's eroded, hmm. and I think it's not just on the part of the students; it's on the part of faculty too um you get a thing now that i don't think used to be as prevalent um, like a lot of faculty will insist on you hey, call me by my first name call me jim and or call me joey or whatever and those of us who you know prefer a little bit more decorum in the classroom are like okay but realize that's that's that person's preference it's not every professor's preference but kids don't always know that or don't want to play ball with that so you get some of that too the hey i'm hip call me joe kind of professor. I've also seen faculty really just sort of defer to student judgment in matters where it seemed bizarre to me that they would. Now, it's not like I would never listen to my students, right? I mean, that's part of being an educator is getting feedback and trying to figure out how they're seeing things. It's a communication problem, partly. But like things like curriculum uh, decisions, mm -hmm. like I just survey the students on what they want. Well, what they want is easy classes, man. They're going to get out of here with a credential of the minimum yeah. effort possible. I mean, the modal one anyway. There's a lot of very good students who would prefer learning stuff. But if you're going to talk to your modal person, especially at a large state school, um, you know, 18-year-olds aren't super good at long-term planning, most of them. <laughs> Oddly enough, I wasn't either. Oddly enough. You know, they're, they're thinking about getting laid and <laughs> the next party they're going to go yeah. to and stuff like that. But you see this sort of weird tendency of people who you'd think would recognize themselves as adults and maybe leaders in the process not doing so. Mm. So maybe it comes from both ends partly, this sort of, uh, you know, let's lower ourselves and we have no authority, we're just your friends, even though some of those same people will gossip behind your back and write you bad job wrecks. <clears throat> I always warn students about that too. One reason I say, you know, I try to maintain the call me a professor so-and-so is like, you need to recognize that that's the nature of the relationship. Yeah. These people who pretend to be your buddies still have influence over you, even if they don't admit it. Um, but yeah, some of that comes from the top down as well as from the bottom up. It's a kind of, we're all the same nowness. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be weird. Cause I, have, I have trouble talking about this about sounding like an elitist of some kind, uh, but Certain relationships have a degree of hierarchy, and I think for a reason. Like, I don't, you know, my, my, my baby son doesn't get to decide when he eats or when he, you know, or when he gets older, he's not going to be able to decide his own bedtime. It's kind of your job to take care of your son. He doesn't know enough yet. Mm -hmm. And vice versa, I don't think professors should 
hold themselves aloof from their students and think they know it all. You don't want to be that insecure prof who bridles when the kid asks them a hard question. You should welcome a question you don't know the answer to or their insights or whatever. At the other extreme of that is just saying, okay, we have no expertise. We, you guys decide what the curriculum will be. You guys decide right. what we're going to do. That's not how you run an educational institution. Yeah. <laughs> right? You can't be like, hey, um, I didn't spend, you know, 10 years of my life studying so that you could come here and decide how, how, how you want the classes structured. You know, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, it's, the, it's, it's, well, it's like any, uh, the, what's the old saying? The, the, and now I'm kind of mixing my own uh, opinions in here. I tried, I tried to distinguish, I'm talking about an actual social relationship I've studied or theorized and just my personal opinions. I'm a bit freer about my personal opinions in education, though, because I think it's part of my job to have them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have some, some stake in the issue. But there's an old saying, the dose makes the poison. And, you know, even water will poison you if you drink enough of it. If you mm-hmm. drink enough fast enough, you will die of, of, of overhydration. Likewise, you know, I favor an egalitarian society. Um, you know, I, I certainly don't want to return to the bad old days of groups being segregated and things like that. It's terrible. And I, and I generally favor, you know, I definitely favor moral egalitarianism. Everybody's a human worth and should be treated as such. Uh, but you get to a point where, like, trying to apply, uh, we're all perfectly equal in all things to every setting starts to become problematic, right? I mean, it would be like if you tried to run a basketball team and we don't care if you're, you know, Shaquille O'Neal or Peter Dinklage, you're going to be on the team. Your team's going to lose to the team where they actually stratify people according to their ability to play the game well, (laughs) which includes things like how tall they are. Right. You know what I mean? And so, like, like, likewise, if you have a... You know, an army where all the privates vote on every decision, they're going to lose the war. Yes. And if you have an educational uh, system where the professors have no recognized authority, intellectual or otherwise, no one's going to learn much, <laughs> I think. Right? Uh, well, I think you're right about that. I think that's where, um, with, um, what's her name? Erica, Erica Christakis, mm-hmm. you know, when she wrote mm-hmm. that email and saying, oh, you know, you, know, you, 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 you can have the right, you, you be your own judge. And if you want to talk to people, you can talk to them. like that whole thing. I mean, it still bothers me. I, um, this university here uh, in Canada, Dalhousie university out in Nova Scotia. Mm. Every, every Halloween, they release a um, pamphlet, right? And on the pamphlet mm. is a, a flow chart of what you're allowed to wear for um, Halloween mm-hmm. and what you're not allowed to wear and who's allowed to wear what. So it'll be like, uh-huh are you white? Yes. And then it's, if it's yes, then it's pretty much you're stuck to like wearing um, like wild, wild west. But if you're not white, you have a bunch <laughs> of other stuff, but then you can't wear certain things. You can't wear this and that. And so with it, and obviously the whole, the whole thing is cultural appropriation. You know, you, it's cultural appropriation to do this yeah. and to, to do that. So what I, what I would love to get your thought on is just cultural appropriation in general, like is, is it something that we should be worried about generally? Like is cultural appropriation, this accusation of cultural appropriation appropriate or is it just completely off the mark? <laughs> well, my, my personal opinions is nuts, but um, speaking of it as a, as a sociological subject, it's interesting because 
you know, one of the things that interests us is we study morality and the moral conflicts people have and what they consider offensive is you'll see you know, new categories of offense come into existence. You know, so cultural appropriation is one example. Uh, that term basically didn't exist a decade ago. Now it's a recognized bad thing. It's a recognized category of offense. Mm. It's, like if, if, it's like a crime that came out of nowhere and boom, now it's a crime. And what's especially interesting about that is the things that get, many of the things that get labeled this new offense, cultural appropriation, are things that 10 years ago would have actually been virtues, right? Mm. So um, we've seen the term applied to white Westerners practicing yoga. Mm. That's cultural appropriation, according to some people. The thing is, like 10, 15 years ago, that was how you proved you were a open-minded person of the world, somebody who is appreciating other cultures and their traditions, and I'm learning yoga now, that meant you were like a good progressive person who is very cosmopolitan. Mm. So it went from being virtue to vice in the span of about a decade, which is amazing to me, (laughs) that you could have something flip like that. I mean, I guess it shouldn't be so amazing, uh, something like a prohibition in the States happened, you know. Alcohol is legal, then illegal, then legal again in about a decade. Yeah. But there, there's like a whole social movement and people would have been campaigning against alcohol for decades. This seemed to happen very quickly. Mm-hmm. Like here again, it was a term none of us had heard of. And suddenly now it's a recognized category of thing you've got to worry about you're going to be accused of. So yeah, it's very fascinating. But yeah, it's, it's also an example of how this stuff moves so quickly um, where you have things that just a short time ago would have been signs of tolerance and curiosity and mm-hmm. open-mindedness now become a kind of offense and not just an offense but like all these offenses in victim and culture are framed the same way it's a matter of oppression you're like you're stealing something from somebody right. um <laughs> and without getting into any arguments about copyright law one of the interesting things about culture is it's most forms of it are non-rival and non-exclusive I can yes. if I start wearing your hairstyle, I'm not taking your hairstyle. You still have it on your head. Yep. It might look better on you, but not on me, you know. Uh, is it like I'm not I mean it from you? This, you know, I mean I'm sure some people would say if you were to wear traditional um Korean male uh, attire when you you know, if you got married, that would be cultural appropriation. Right? Or if if you had kimchi, I mean <laughs> Oh, you know, I hope you don't make kimchi because that would be uh, that would be cultural appropriation. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy well, to me some, that I got some very beautiful pictures of me culturally appropriating on my wedding day. Oh yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. It just seems like, like you were saying, it was cosmopolitan at one point to you know to be accepting and to try all these new things, and now it's just like mm-hmm. it's a serious crime. I mean, you have. Um, there was this there was this lady out in um, Vancouver, and I think she's Indian Canadian, meaning like she's second gen, and she was born here. Yeah. And she, I was reading this article it was, um, on one of our big outlets, and she was saying that she started a restaurant, um, a bone broth restaurant, bone broth soup restaurant, something like that. Mm-hmm. And the reason she started it, it's not because she loved bone broth or. You know, because she wanted people to try, but it was because white people at restaurants were making this and that they were taking and stealing from whole, her culture. And so she had to regain, um, what's the word they use? Like, not possession, but regain 
um, the power mm-hmm. of making bone uh-huh. broth. And I thought, so like, what is going on? It, it's a strange sort of thing. And the main analogy I, I've, I've thought of, and we've said this in print somewhere or other, I think Quillet, um, is to, there, there used to be laws in a lot of places, like maybe some places there still are, uh, limiting your cultural consumption, saying that, uh, for example, like I gave the example earlier, peasants couldn't wear the same styles or colors as the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. They were called sumptuary laws, you know. Even if you can afford the fashionable pointy shoes, my dear peasant, you don't wear them because they're not for you. Oh. That's the only analogy I can find to this, but it's it's sort of strange because uh, the status relations are theoretically reversed, right? It's 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 cultural appropriation if you take from somebody who's a, a minority or a lower status group, if if you use their culture, it's not uh, cultural appropriation to take cultural elements from a higher status group or majority group. So it's it's uh, fits of our argument that in this moral framework. Um, lower status or minority groups are in a way morally elevated to being kind of moral superiors when, okay, it's, it's bad for you to wear the Royal purple. It's also bad for you to make the bone broth. That's the closest analogy we can find. I guess maybe you could also compare it to things like members of some subculture getting kind of annoyed that posers are getting involved. Like I'm a real punk. These other people dressing in my punk fashions, they weren't here back when it was cool. I guess it could be something like that as well, which you might say is another version of that same phenomena, kind of mm-hmm. uh, we're the higher status ones, we're the OGs, and you guys are the, the imitators and, and worth less than us. But it's, it's, it strikes me as bizarre that that's caught on so quickly. Mm-hmm. That concept is caught on so quickly. And uh, here again, like microaggression at least was, was bumbling around in the academic literature for a couple decades. I don't think the same thing is true of cultural appropriation. At least I don't, I don't know that it was true. I think that's a much more recent coinage, but fantastically successful in a small amount of time. Yeah. You would think that living in a Western, um, you know, Western individual mindset society that cultural appropriation would not be a problem seeing as if there's such a strong emphasis on being an individual and being free to do whatever you want, then why couldn't you be free to do whatever you want and wear whoever's clothes you want to wear, style your hair the way you want to style it? Yeah. And then, and also I do think about one consequence. I mean, people have often talked about cultural mingling as a positive, partly because um, they imagine it might decrease intergroup prejudice. It might decrease hostilities um, you know, how prejudiced can you be against people when you've, you know, discovered you like their clothing and their food and other aspects of their culture? It tends to give you a more a positive view of them, maybe a kind of closeness to them in a way that wasn't there before. Maybe we can all relate to each other a little bit better if we know a few words of one another's languages or one another's cuisines or something like that. And so there's an argument to be made that, you know, that sort of sharing and mixing increases everybody's you know, closeness of these different groups and can improve relations between different ethnicities or nationalities. And so if you start walling that off, well, wouldn't that have the opposite effect or undermine that effect? Right. It's a possibility. That's true. Um, Jason, what, where can people find you on social media? Do you have a Twitter? Do you have Instagram? Uh, Unfortunately, I do. The, I, I don't know all the new ones. I'm kind of a dinosaur, actually. I, I still have a flip phone, which my wife is 
Do you still have a flip phone? Get rid of. Yeah, I still have the old-fashioned. Oh my god! I love these things. <laughs> I, I feel like Captain Kirk whenever is it I open Nokia, it. Is it a like, Motorola? Samsung. I oh, got to be loyal okay. to the country to the I married into. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so you have a Twitter. But, but I do have a Twitter. Unfortunately, I am okay. part of that dumpster fire. Uh, but it is somewhat useful if you if you follow interesting people who say interesting things. And uh, it's useful on my end for promoting uh, my books. Um, mm-hmm. Rise of Victimhood is on Amazon. And my forthcoming book, Suicide, Suicide. Uh, Social Causes of Self-Destruction, yeah, okay. that'll be out in May, also available for pre-order on Amazon. I got to get my plug in, man. You know it. Yeah, Everything's sure. a muscle. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, maybe we can have you back for when your book, once your book's released, Suicide. Yeah, I'm looking forward uh, to it. That's that's really the culmination of a lot of work. I've been working on that for over a decade now. So wow, that's awesome. And what was your Twitter handle? Um, on Twitter, I'm sociology wv. Sociology. Okay. And do you have a website that people can go to? I do. Um, it's www.socialgeometer.com. Okay. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much for this. I appreciate it and I, it was a fantastic conversation. Me.